welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. Welcome to episode 18 of Why Make. Today we are talking with B.A. Harrington, a conceptual furniture maker, sculptor, and teacher. Alongside traditional woodworking training from the North Bennett Street School in Boston, B.A. also holds degrees in both art history, furniture design, and woodworking from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. B.A.'s sculptural work references early American furniture forms traditionally used by women, including dowry chests. She digs deep, researching into her inherited past and cultural lineage to create works that both reveal the past and create a more informed and positive future for women. B.A. is currently on sabbatical from teaching woodworking at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and like most instructors, trying to figure out how she's going to navigate teaching in the fall. Here's our thought-provoking conversation with B.A. Harrington. We are talking today with uh, B.A. Harrington, and would you say you're the director of the woodworking program at IUP, which is Indiana University of Pennsylvania, for those who are do not know, in Indiana, Pennsylvania, so it makes sense, because there's also California University of Pennsylvania. Um, right. So right. Uh, the way we like to start this is the, um, as I'm sure since you've listened to some other our podcast, is the, the why make question, and the, and the why make question is, what's your first memory of making something? And the sort of the, the question that goes along with that, when did you know you wanted to be a maker? It's funny. I, I cannot pinpoint a first memory of making something. It's more a general, the que- <laughs> it's kind of funny because the question why make, I grew up not really knowing any other way of being. Like making was, it was a way of life. I did, I, you know, there were all, there were things always being made, um, at my house and I didn't, it, I couldn't really conceive of a life where you weren't making things. So, um, my dad, my dad was a carpenter. Um, so there was, he was making houses for people and a lot of other stuff, but, and me now being a woodworker, um, you know, my mind instantly goes to, and a lot of people that know us to, oh, this came from my father, right? Mm-hmm. But I realized that a lot of the making actually, and especially um, some of the process part of the making, which I really love. And I think that was part of it too, for me, there was always the process of it, the gathering. Okay, so one of my earliest memories is making cards for people all the, you know, making cards for whatever occasion. Oh, like greeting cards. things. And- Greeting cards, birthday cards. One of the things that I did a lot that I loved to do when I was very young was take flowers or leaves that I found, cool stuff that I found in nature, and iron it between wax paper and then make that into cards, right? Things like Mm -hmm. that. But so for me, it it was an ongoing process of collecting stuff that I thought was cool and turning it into something. My mom made our clothes. Oh, oh, so she was always on the sewing machine or working by hand. And- yes. Yeah. So like a typical evening would be the family watching TV with my dad in his office in the basement, in the back of the basement, 
working on drawings or doing math because he was self-employed and, you know, did all his own books and my mom sewing. Uh, my brothers were, I have three older brothers. They're quite a bit older than me. The youngest one is nine years older than me. When I was growing up, when I was really young, they were a big part of my life. But then, you know, junior high, high school, they were off starting families and things. So then I was kind of only childish. It felt like they also were all trained as carpenters by my father. That was their, you know, summer job. So they worked for your dad? In college. Summers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Starting when they were, you know, as soon as they could push a broom. Yeah, or swing basically. a hammer or, yeah, or then swing a hammer. Yeah. Yeah. The broom <laughs> yeah. is yeah. always where you started on a construction site. <laughs> right. Right. I was always around building. So I, you know, I saw houses being built from the ground up constantly. My dad was a small um, contractor, mm -hmm. was just, you know, he and a crew of maybe three guys full time. And then my brothers in the summers and um, they'd he'd pretty much be working on one house at a time. Mm -hmm. And they framed and finished, you know, so the only thing they subbed out was the electrical drywall, that kind of stuff. But it was just that process was so exciting to me from a very young age to what, like, I still love the smell of fresh poured concrete, right? Because that was the beginning of this process. The basement was poured. And then my dad, my mom and dad bought 40 acres um, when my dad was in his mid twenties, when he was starting his construction business. And we lived there until, well, until after I, after I had graduated from college and got married and my parents built 10 houses that they lived in, in that neighborhood. I lived in eight of them growing up. Oh so, my goodness. Yeah. 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 And my dad built probably a third of the houses on that 40 acres, if not half of them. So like, it was very common for me as a child to be playing outside and hear my father's hammer during the day. I think f for me that I was really hooked on not just um, making things in the, the final outcome, but the whole process of thinking through, like I said, the collecting of materials, the, how those were going to be put together, just to become something that you put out into the world. So as a child, it was also, you know, making little houses for animals that I was trying to save or that I found, you know, we lived, we lived out in the country near the woods. So there was just endless stuff from nature. Where did you grow up? BA? To explore and collect. Holland, Michigan, in Michigan. Okay. Western, southwestern Michigan. So we were about a mile from the lake out, you know, out in the woods. But I also saw, because I, I said we lived in eight different houses growing up, I lived in the same house until I was six, and then seven more houses before I graduated from high school. So I also saw my, watched that whole process of my parents designing a new home together, and my mom collecting images from magazines, showing them to my dad and saying, you know, could we do this? Could we do this? And I also... I didn't think about this until recently when I knew I was going to do this podcast with you guys. A really important thing that I also saw was mistakes being made or uh -huh. things being done that didn't come out quite the way that you wanted them to. Mm -hmm. And this was always a source of tension between my mother and father when a new house was being built because she, she would look at pictures and have these ideas of, Oh, let's do this. And then <laughs> my father would do what he thought she wanted 
And then it was not at all what she thought it was going to be. Or and he would take it all out, take it. Oh all, no, take it apart, start over and with redo it. it. Right. So, <clears throat> yeah. sort of an interesting study on the uh, on the collaborative process. Was it more a study of variations on a theme, or was each home radically different? Oh, each home was radically different, and he would he would um, uh, kind of. <laughs> my dad was not, yeah. My dad was not trained as a designer, or he just he learned his carpentry skills from his father mm-hmm. and some uncles. But he he had a, he did one semester of college, but he had a great head for this stuff. He had sort of an engineering mind, like he knew how to do math that he didn't know. He couldn't tell you what he couldn't tell you the math he was doing, but he knew how to put the numbers together to yeah. get what he needed. That was a part of his process that he understood in his brain to make the house or the framing happen. Yes, and he 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 was creative and he liked trying new things. So he would start for us for our houses. He would start with a plan that he found somewhere, and then it would get tweaked. So I also saw, like in his office, there were a lot of drawings and blueprints. I mean, I loved looking at the things in in his yeah. office in the basement. One of my favorite things was pencils. <laughs> he had so many pencils, and watching him sharpen the pencils with a knife. Right. So now since he's passed, I have a collection. I collect every single pencil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have lots great. of pencils. <laughs> every single pencil I could get my hand on that I saw that he had sharpened with a with a oh, knife. That's great. Also, just that marking on wood is a huge thing for me. Well, it's kind of a it's it's a maker's mark. I mean, it really is. Yeah. And I, I realized too, so I love finding, you know, when you're remodeling a house, finding, you know, ripping off the sheetrock and then finding marks on the studs or when you look in old furniture. And in some of my work, some of my sculpture work, I've, I've left mm-hmm. pencil marks on. Also, I, I'm constantly telling my students, you know, pencils or your pencil is one of your most important tool. You're, you're, you're constantly marking your wood. You're either telling yourself what you need to do or what you have done. That kind of, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's a great added information <laughs> and you're putting that information right on your wood. It's, it's, um, and different, you learn your own process and you understand the marks that you need to make. It might be slightly different from someone mm-hmm. else's, but so that mark making, but also that that was a big, that give and take of the the design process and figuring out what could be done, what couldn't, uh, what worked, what didn't. Uh, my father was also, I knew from a pretty early age, I understood that he was very good at what he did, was very respected, and that he did things right. It kind of makes it, probably made you look at him a different way once you realize that. Yeah, and there's a story of him when he was a teenager. And his father, my grandpa, mm-hmm. who was not a perfectionist, <laughs> was not as good of a carpenter as my dad. He also jointed one of his fingers like oh. three or four times down to the first mm. knuckle. He had built a little telephone stand kind of thing built in in their house. It was not up to my father's standard. Oh, no. Yeah, my father thought it wasn't good enough, and he redid it. Oh, he pulled it all out, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was the first. And there's the, the guys that he worked for; they would talk about this, and there were they were made to rip things out and redo them at times. My mother was not 
thought of as she always downplayed her skills. She didn't, she could sew okay, but she didn't think she was a great seamstress. She hated her handwriting. My dad had this beautiful flowery handwriting. His name's Edwin. So this beautiful E, cursive E. My mom could barely do cursive. She, because she was very insecure about her skills, but that didn't stop her from, she made, I don't think I ever wore a dress that my mom didn't make until I was probably 15 or 16. She even, when my brothers were little, she made their button-down collared shirts. Oh, wow. Each one would be in a different plaid, and they had a little matching <laughs> belt that she made. And I remember, again, the whole, the excitement of the process. Like, I loved seeing her lay out the patterns and cut out the fabric pin it together. I remember having to stand there and have clothing sort of dry fit on me, right? You'd put it on inside out and get pricked by the pins <laughs> to make sure that it fit. And I also remember her getting things not quite right, you know, being frustrated and having to like rip a seam out and redo so it. So perfectionist in her own right. Yeah, yeah, she was. Um, she just didn't give herself credit and you know, there's the, we don't need to go into that. Well, and it's it, it, there's a whole you know history of family dynamic yeah. and well, and of course the, the whole notion of perfectionism running through woodworking as a as a as a craft. I mean, I, I think it's a it's an evil we all deal with. I mean, it's the yeah, uh, it's the necessity. What what's that that phrase? Uh, oh, it's 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 evading me, but often we let perfection get in the way of a good idea. It's like, yeah, that's not quite right. Yeah. And I struggle with that a lot because I'm I, a victim too. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I trained at North Bennett street. Oh yeah. So well, yeah, that's and actually, I, I wanted my... to get to that. So you went to North Bennett street before you went to college or. No, I, I went to North Bennett street between college. Well, the way this happened for me was it was clear from an early age that I was good with my hands and people ought to always say, you know, think of them as, my hot, my father's hands, she's got her father's hands, but my mom's hands were in there as well. And those have come out now more in my work because I actually incorporate a lot of textiles into my work now. My brothers were all taught carpentry. Didn't occur to anyone that those skills would be just as useful for a girl. So I was not taught to swing a hammer by my father. I probably pushed a broom several times, but I was never employed by him the way that my brothers okay. were. Once they had left home, I was his lackey sometimes at home, not on the job site. Well, may, I, there may have been an occasion where after the workday ended, if there was one more thing he wanted to go back and do that he needed a second pair of hands for, he would bring me. That's what I was. I was just a second hat pair of hands, you know, to steady a sheet of plywood that he was ripping down on the table saw. And the things that I learned, the things that he did teach me was how to do that how to help someone cut something at the table saw without interfering, without causing a safety hazard, right? So I learned a few little things like that from him, but not skills in terms of making or mm -hmm. building. But he didn't treat me differently than my brothers. He, If I had asked him, I'm sure he wouldn't have hesitated, but it just didn't occur to us. One thing I, I do remember doing things like 
the house that he built by when I was I was 16 when we moved into that house and my bedroom so I was I was more involved you know as I got older I got more involved in the design part of the house I was asked how I wanted my bedroom what did I want what did I want wallpaper this hardwood floor carpet so my bedroom had a hardwood floor and he wanted it to be distressed so he took a rolling pin and hammered things into it <laughs> and <That's awesome. laughs> I rolled the floor with this to distress it. That's one thing I remember doing. My mom wanted me to carve. He made the cabinet doors for the cabinet and my mom wanted me to carve them. I had no idea how to carve. I didn't know how to I didn't know what that involved. She just knew I, you know, I was good with my hands and I took a lot of art classes and stuff. So that didn't that didn't happen. And it you know, now I think if if any of us had had the wherewithal, we could have enrolled me in some kind of carving class or something to learn that. But it we sounds didn't. like it just didn't occur to you to that that was possible. No. And I think, you know, we it, I grew up in a very traditional setting mm-hmm. and that neither, you know, they wanted me to go neither of them went to college. Well, my dad did a semester. My brothers all went to college. They expected me to go to college, but they didn't necessarily expect me to have to have a vocation. Yeah. Yeah. That's just the prevailing sexism of our of the times and yeah, still today. Yeah. Society yeah. period is still unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so did you go to undergrad school? Is it was was art your major? Yeah. And I was very, very torn because I was also I was also a really smart kid. I did really well in math and English. Mm-hmm. Got straight A's until tenth grade maybe. <laughs> then I started having fun. You know, it was that whole am I gonna go am I gonna do the sciences or am I gonna do this art thing? And I remember in ninth grade, shortly before the semester started, my assistant principal called and said, there's a conflict between art class and Latin. So you're not going to be able to take art. And I said, and his wife happened to be the Latin teacher. And I said, oh, no, Mr. Osborne, no, I'll, I'll take the art class. And he was floored. I, you know, I didn't, we didn't have a great art teacher in junior high. And now looking back at that too, I understand, you know, she was, she was young right out of school and the boys were mean. I mean, it was a lot of the class was me seeing her be so frustrated. Defending herself probably. Yeah. And these, you know, just crazy. So I didn't learn that much about art and my high school art teacher was miserable. He was just done with it all. He was the same guy that my brothers had had as an art teacher in high school. So uh, he just, you know, he was ready yeah. to retire. It was a and job he would, and he, he was would, done. <laughs> yeah, he would leave the room and go back to his office and smoke. And it was, and I, it was also a little, by the time you got to high school too, the art classes were all the burnout kids. Right, right. So this was also a tension for me because I became friends with some of them. And I was a goody two-shoes and grew up very conservative religiously. And so <laughs> this was a source of tension a little bit too, because like, I, I liked, I, I liked these kids. I didn't go smoke pot with them in the morning in the parking lot, but I also wasn't, I knew them and would say, I wasn't afraid of them the way that some of my other, you know, more nerdy academic smart. How could you hang out with those people? Were... <laughs> They're so yeah. bad. Anyway, I, I, I didn't develop as an artist the way I could have mm-hmm. because there was this uh, tension between doing art and um, doing something that was more thought of as a real vocation. 
even though I was a girl and so I didn't really need a vocation. But I think that's where, too, the world of building things and a vocation in the arts that was available to men, it was fine for my brothers to be carpenters. What if your brothers wanted to be artists? Have you ever thought about, like, what would have happened? You know, what would have happened to those guys if... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't know. They all were. They all ended up working in the building trades in, mm-hmm. in some Throughout way. Throughout their life. Yeah, my oldest brother went joined the Air Force because um, he was at the tail end of Vietnam, and he knew his um, draft number was going to come up. So he joined the Air Force, and um, so he became an electrician. Oh, wow. And then middle brother is a big time contractor in um, Boulder. Colorado builds multi-million dollar homes, you know, he's the one that really took off with my dad's skill and creativity. And, and, and then my uh, youngest brother has moved in and out of various things related to building, but his latest, uh, the, the thing he's done the most of and is really trying to get going now is fake rock. Okay. So he makes... And environmentally he friendly makes, fake rock or just fake rock? No, okay. Oh, okay. I don't think so. Concrete. Um, Polyurethane foam. Yeah. Oh, um, gosh. Yeah. So what what did they, what do they think? He's of... really good at it though. Oh, that's and cool. I see like he these he's very creative in the way that he, he that he does it. So you can still mm-hmm. see my dad's you know, my dad coming and through. Coming through. This, and, yeah. So what do they think of their their sister who's an artist and a teacher? What do they think of the stuff that you've done? Oh, they think it's they think it's cool. They don't they don't completely understand right, it. As it should be, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There was a really, really fun moment for me where, and I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but eventually I did end up learning some things about carpentry from my father when he helped me on my own houses. So the first remodel project we did. Oh, that's cool. I learned how to swing a hammer. Okay. I don't do it real well because I don't do it that often. It's quite a skill to to drive oh a 16 penny God. nail in like two or three whacks. One, two, three. Yeah, and of course, like seven, eight, nine, the ten. Hammer, <laughs> the hammer comes so close to his temple, right? It's just. And of course, nobody a swings a hammer anymore. Everybody uses nomadic nail thing. guns. <laughs> I know. He, well, he never did. I mean, we did, we even swung hammers when we re roofed my house. The only thing we used in, no, 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 on the main part of the house. We used nail guns and then just he and I did the, the roof over the porch and we swung hammers right. for that. So he did he did teach me things then. And I saw him do things like tweak a two by four that was, you know, had a bow in it or twist in oh, it. Oh yeah. Pull the bow out of it with a nail, right? By hammering it part way in, bending it, bending the nail, and then hammering it the rest of the way in to like pull the two by four a little bit. Just, you know, cool stuff like that. And he would always tell me when we were working together that he didn't have the patience to do the fine work that I did. And then I would explain to him how what he did was the same, you know, what we did was very similar, but just the tolerances were different. Mm -hmm. And this was a guy who framed walls to within like an eighth of an inch. You know, he, he was very meticulous about it. Yeah. Oh, this, this exciting moment I was going to tell you about. So I, I did learn to swing a hammer from him. Of course, I make a lot of, as he calls them, elephant tracks. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> you, mar the, you mar the wood. I have lots of those. Um, use one too. <laughs> yeah. So, but he and I eventually, we, 
we did this collaborative project together that was part of my art art practice. And the first time that so we built it four different times in four different locations. And it's a it's a site, you know, built on site thing. So it it's temporary and the wood has to be, you know, it has to be taken apart and the wood can be reused, recycled for something else. But the first time we built it, so it was taking this dowry chest form that a large portion of my work is based on. And what we did was built it three times the scale. So three times as large. We watched the video on your website. It's amazing. So you've seen that. So we built it the way you would frame a house. So for me, you, well, you saw the video. It's all thinking about inheritance and vocation and sort of my skills as being inherited from my father, but then just this navigation between our skills, between our relationship, the family history. I couldn't quite get him to understand what it, what I wanted to do. And so what you wanted to do from a conceptual point. I mean, he understood the actual building part. Yes. But to get him to understand how we needed to, we were trying to scale wise, proportion wise, keep it as close to the structure, structural form of the dowry chest, the original dowry chest as possible. But we were also limited to framing lumber. So we had to, you know, we had to work within that. So it was difficult for him to figure out what size, what size lumber we would use for different things. I pulled my brother, Tim in, the one who's the contractor in Boulder, and explained to him what I was trying to do. And he, you know, got it and drew it out based on framing lumber. So he helped to bridge the gap between you and your father. Yes, yes. And then my dad. Um, so we built it four different times. Oh, wow. You know, we'd, we'd build it slightly different mm-hmm. each time, just little things. <laughs> and we'd, we'd have the same argument every time because <laughs> he was thinking like a carpenter and the way this should be. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, I had more of my artist cap on and this is, you know, it has to look like this or be. So, but it was really, it was, it was a really cool thing. To do. So, I mean, actually we're, we're jumping around a little bit, which is good because Sorry. linear stories okay. aren't always that interesting. <laughs> but I, I did want to establish that you did attend the North Bennett Street School, which for people who don't know, is a, it's a school of traditional handicrafts, right? They teach traditional carpentry, woodworking, um, instrument making. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually the, was the first trade school in the country. A long and, history. Wow. And it, yeah, in the late uh, 1880s, it was founded to teach trades to immigrants, actually. Right. They have cabinet and furniture making, preservation carpentry, regular carpentry, piano technology, and restoration, jewelry making, book binding, locksmithing, and violin making. If you ever get a chance, if you're ever in Boston, go visit. It's an amazing place. There's nothing quite like it. So yes, North Bennett. So the way that that happened was I... So in college, initially, I was going to be an archaeologist. So I took some art history classes that were required of the archaeology or, or fit that, and then took a studio class. I also didn't think I was good enough to be an artist, artist, right? Like I could make stuff, and, but it was more craft or I don't know. I felt insecure in that world. But I hap- the small liberal arts college that I went to happened to have one of the focuses in the art department was textiles. Hmm. Oh. And I hadn't really thought of that as you could you, you could, could do, do that? this yeah. and you could 
Yeah, you don't have to draw. You don't have to do figure drawing, like drawing and painting. Or become a painter or something. I hadn't thought so much of the 3D world because I hadn't been pushed in that direction or given those opportunities to build things as much in the 3D world. So I took textiles, I loved it, then I switched and became an art major. So I actually did a lot of uh, felting, hand felted wool, and I missed that. It, it, it did get me into the world of three-dimensional you know, making. And my dad, well, my dad and I did a little collaborative project back then too, but um, where he helped me build this structural form for a, a felt canopy that I had made. I moved to Boston then with my husband. He got a PhD in philosophy at Harvard took 11 years. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we were in Boston for a long time. I was teaching art and an elementary um, after school program and waiting tables. And somehow North Bennett Street came on the radar screen for me. Someone pointed it out. A friend we knew um, that knew I was good with my hands, knew someone that had gone there. And he was like, you should really check this out. And I just, I hadn't thought of that I hadn't really thought of woodworking before for myself because he was talking specifically about the cabinet furniture program. So I went and checked out the school. I was blown away by the student work. And there was also at the time, right around the same time, the New American Furniture Show, which was a um, studio, like second generation studio furniture makers. That was, that was in Boston as well. That was... Yeah. And it was where they were, they um, looked at pieces from the historical collection of furniture and then built a contemporary piece in response. So that's a, that's that, a I, I went to concept. see that show. It's a great concept. Yeah. It, oh, that, that show blew my mind. And there was a, uh, there was a very contemporary arts-based furniture program. What was that? UMass Dartmouth. Um, that was about the same. Film. Yeah. Right. That, yeah. That was driving a uh, lot of that. And, yeah. And I think that had that, I think that program had ended it by then. Anyway, but the, the studio furniture movement was in full force then, yeah. right? There was a chair by Michael Hurwitz, this rocking chaise, this be- beautiful piece, bent uh, lamination, but it also has dovetails. Anyway, just I loved everything that I saw, but that just was, I just, I couldn't believe this stuff was made in wood. Like I had never seen, you know, I had seen a lot of antique furniture and I had seen the houses my dad built and the cabinetry and that, but not um, the standalone furniture. And I went and saw a North Bennett Street student show. And again, I was just, I was blown away by the work. And there was one chair in particular that I was so struck by. It was so beautiful. And it was a reproduction, structurally, an exact reproduction of a bent laminated Samuel Gregg chair, which was one of the, I think he was was one of the first to do these bent laminations. And this guy, Tony Hayden had built it. And he, the only thing, he changed the wood slightly so that it was ebony and maple contrasting. Mm -hmm. And what I also couldn't get over was how modern it looked, even though it was based, it was a reproduction of a chair that was designed and built in the late, late 1800s. I think, or no, or maybe it's, maybe it's early. I can't remember when that Greg chair was built for sure. Anyway, I went back to revisit the new American furniture show at the Boston MFA and realized that the Michael Hurwitz rocking chaise 
was inspired by the same Samuel <laughs> made, Gray. You made those connections. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, Tony Hay- that Tony Hayden's North Bennett Street chair was a reproduction of. And for me, that was that was this epiphany moment mm-hmm. that I could not walk away from. It just like something in me came alive at that yeah, moment. You flipped a switch. Yeah. I flipped a switch and I started, I just, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, a, I'm going to be a woodworker now. I'm, I'm going to go to this North Bennett street school and this is what I'm going to do. And I didn't, I figured I had the hands for it. I didn't realize how much at the time that this was also a way of connecting to my father finally and paying homage to him, connecting to that, that tradition in my own family history. Um, but it def, you know, that was definitely part of it. So then I was just determined. You have the hands for it, but you also had, you didn't know it at the time, but you had the mind for it too. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, but I didn't, I didn't know it. So here I am, no woodworking skills at all. And I want to get into this school. So I went and talked to, I went and talked to them and I was told, well, you just apply and we have a pretty long waiting list to get in, but um, you have to show some woodworking skills. They don't have to be excellent yet, but you have, you have to, you know, you have to have a little portfolio. You have to have done something in, in, in wood. So I took a community education class in Cambridge and made this stupid little book stand. Do you still have it? Like desktop book stand. Do you still have it? I don't know. I don't know. I made it for my husband, Walnut. And I drove the the instructor a little nutty because I, I can't remember now. There was something about the way I wanted to do it. The way he wanted me to do it, I didn't want to do it because you were going to see it wouldn't have looked as clean as I wanted it to look. I just, I just remember that being so he, he was like, okay, well, you know, yes, we can do this. But, and now since I've actually done some of that kind of teaching myself, I understand why, <laughs> you know, he was trying to get me to not do, I mean, it, it did come out pretty clean and that got my feet wet a little bit, but I also realized pretty quickly, this is not where, this is not the kind of setting that I'm going to get my, the skills that I need to apply to North Bennett with. And they happened to be starting their first summer workshops. Oh, Bennett Street was? So I took a Queen Anne, North Bennett Street was. So oh. I took a Queen Anne, Queen Anne footstool class with Will Neptune. So let's see, I started, I started North Bennett in 92, fall of 92. So this would have been the summer of 91. This was the first time they were doing these workshops. There was no prerequisite listed for the class. Jackpot. <laughs> Anyone can take it. You just signed up, paid your money. There was a list of tools. I showed up and it was me and like 10 guys. They all had some kind of, you know, they were either carpenters or hobbyists, but they all had some woodworking experience. And here was me with this box of new tools. And I remember Will realizing, shit, you don't, you haven't done anything. <laughs> like, you don't even know what the planer and dry, you know, you, you've seen these machines, but you don't, well, I got water stones because it seemed less messy to me than right. oil. Um, not because I knew the difference or I, and just, so Will, I don't know if either of you guys have met Will. I have not, but I have not, I'm not. Talk about amazing mind. He, so the first thing we did was sharpen our chisels. 
so this law, you know, intense lecture on sharpening, I still have the notes that I took on this tiny little pad. So I, I, um, he sent us away then to go sharpen our chisels. And I just did exactly what he told us to do. And then I came up and showed him my chisel. He was like, are you, you've never done this before? You sure? Like, and he said, how did you just get this chisel this sharp? And I said, I just did what you told me to do. And also I think things like the, you know, the guys were at the grinder burning their chisels and dipping them in water. And I was kind of afraid of this thing, <laughs> this spinning wheel. And so I had a much lighter touch. Mm-hmm which, you know, I tell my students a lot too, you actually often, you have a lot more control with a lighter touch than when you're really bearing down on stuff where you're ramming things, you know, ramming your finger joints through the data set. But it was, it was one of the most intense and scary things I've done. (laughs) But Will was such an excellent teacher. And I think I was probably the only other woman in the building at the time other than Lillian uh, the receptionist who's still there. Oh. <laughs> or did she just retire? I think she's still there. I mean, things have changed so much since then, right? I took the class. I did not finish my Queen Anne footstool in the class, but Will sent me home with enough. Uh, he made these um, V jaw things for me that I could clamp mm-hmm. the legs, you know, yeah. into a vice so that I could finish shaping the cabriole leg. And I worked on that. It took me a long time, but I got that finished. It, Will had also taught us how just a little slip seat upholstery mm-hmm. thing. So I finished that and I thought, okay, with this and the picture of my little walnut book stand, desktop book stand, I can apply to North Bennett. So I did. I had my interview. Roy, I can't remember his last name right now, but who was the um, admissions director then? He said uh, that Will had said I had good hands, which later that that came around to uh, bite me a little bit once I started the regular program. But so I was admitted and it was going to be like a year and a half out before I could actually go. But then they had someone cancel for that September or that October. Mm-hmm. And uh, Roy called me and said, do you want to do you want to start this fall? I was like, yeah. And I paid for it with my husband took out student loans for me. <laughs> to pay. Oh, I couldn't I couldn't take out student loans because I already had an undergrad degree. Oh, okay. And they didn't consider and this that. This was not that a grad be, degree. Yeah. So I couldn't take it. Yeah, don't tell anyone that. But so <laughs> Bill took out the, the student loans because he had a teaching assistantship, didn't really need them, and paid for that paid for me to go to North Bennett. And that was man, that was a trip. Uh, so is that like a two a two year program? Two year program, and I still um, well. And the thing about North Bennett when I when I decided okay I'm going to do this woodworking thing with no skills, and I knew that eventually I would want to take it into the the realm of art making, but I knew I couldn't go there without a solid skill base. You didn't know you wanted to take it into art then. Well, I knew I I did sort of. Okay. I knew that I wouldn't want to be just building reproduction furniture. Okay. That, that, that's... that I would want to be designing, you know, my own things, more contemporary. But to me, what made sense was to go to this amazing craft school that 
I already lived in Boston and this is where you get your skills. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a real interesting approach because you sort of front-ended all your technique because um, you then go to, to University of Wisconsin-Madison for your MFA. And that's obviously a very studio furniture, artiture, you know, based program. And, and Tom Loser was there when you were there, right? Yeah. Right. He's actually so. just retired. Oh, he now, is just now. Year. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, a real different world than North Bennett Street and a real different <laughs> approach. Yeah. 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 And that w- but that was the world that I wanted to be a part mm-hmm. of eventually. I took 10 years in between. Well, between Bennett and... Between Bennett and... Yeah. So I was I was building custom furniture for people and continuing to wait tables or bartend. And your furniture was influenced by your skills at North Bennett? I mean, it was mostly traditional pieces? Oh. Mm, mm, no. Well, yes, but more 20th century. So a lot arts and crafts. I did a lot of arts and crafts stuff. And at North Bennett, my table... What counted as my table, because it was all mortise and tenon, was a stickly prairie settle for friends that commissioned it from me. So it was a reproduction of that. So what I did a federal style side chair that was based on a chair at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. I tweaked that, though, a little bit. I didn't do the exact design. The chair that I was looking at had these intersecting ovals Mm -hmm. for the splat, and I turned them into sort of gothic arches that I did that I did a bent lamination, basically made my own plywood and veneered that. And the chair was much more contemporary looking because it was cherry and ebony, but still it was a, a traditional federal design where you go measure the, I measured the chair at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts and yeah. based my drawing on So that. you were kind of tweaking existing D- stuff. Mile, just, just tweaking enough to feel like there was something original in there mm-hmm. because I, I understood that North Bennett was not a design school and that the, my, my best use of the instructors there was, was to do what they, what they knew and what they knew well. So I didn't want to spend a lot of time trying to design, yeah. you know, some new well, thing. Well, learning that, that that technique that you know not many schools teach that hard learned yeah, technique. That like kind that. of yeah, yeah. So you know, hand cut dovetails, traditional integral um, mortise and tenons, where you're you know hollow chisel mortiser, and and then just just learning all the all the um, precedents for construction sound construction and sound design. And I, I understood that it was important to get that foundation before then pushing up against it or, or let, um, or even letting it go. Right. Yeah. But also it sounds like, because, you know, obviously uh, this is a part of your history as a mer- maker, but also a sound grounding in historical forms, his- historical furniture forms, which um, yeah. most of us most of us contemporary makers do not have. I did not. Right. I did not know what a Hadley chest was until I read your your CV. <laughs> so that I mean that formed the basis of from where you went because you then went. I mean, ten years later, you you got your MFA at Wisconsin with Tom Loser in a very contemporary department. But then you go, you get an art history degree on top of that. Right. So interestingly, I am not really part of the studio furniture world. You're an, you're an outlier. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think of myself, I don't think of myself as a designer in that sense. I don't design furniture. 
I design sculptural work that's based on existing iconic or you might say archetypal early American furniture forms. So it was a real grad school was the first year of grad school was really, really hard. I know Tom was really worried about me because I didn't know what to do with my skills. Oh, how to approach the conceptual side of. Yeah. Yeah. I knew how to make stuff really well, but I knew that that wasn't going to really get me much of anything um, in this studio art setting. Well, you did. you, you, You were trying to find something to say. Yeah, I was trying to find something to say. And I thought that that was about finding my gimmick, you know, finding my thing that I do. And before going to grad school early on, uh, the first workshop I ever took at um, Anderson Ranch was with Christina Madsen. I love, love, love her work. And now I understand how influential she and her work have been to me. So I went and took this carving workshop with her. But it wasn't because I thought I was suddenly going to start covering furniture forms with carving the way Christina did. That's what she did. Was this before or after she had gone to the Fiji Islands and studied with that? After, after. after. So uh, Makiti Koto was at Anderson Ranch with her for these two weeks teaching. Wow. Yeah. So he was just sitting under this tent out in the grass (laughs) on the ground carving. So, but that was, that was really pivotal for me to meet someone like Christina, see her work. What an inspiration. You know, and the other thing is Christina is not, Christina's a fairly quiet person, introspective person, not at all masculine or butch, we say, in, in, in terms of a woman maker, which a lot of us, I think, would describe ourselves as a bit more masculine than than a lot of women, but I don't even know what I'm saying. No, no, just, no, you're, you're making, it, you're that, making sense because it's almost stereotypical that it's going to be a strong woman. That's going to be a, a, a woodworker. Right. And that's kind of what right. you expect. And it, and it's not what you saw in her. No. Right. And, sh- and her carving is based on a traditional carving from a culture where only men carve. But her forms are these refined, more delicate, sort of elegant structures. My favorite piece to this day is um, a piece called the Darner Chest. It's either pearwood or cherry. I think it's actually pearwood. And the drawers are completely covered with a carved pattern that I later found out through communications with Christina was based on a lace-making pattern that she learned to crochet from her aunts when she was a young girl. And she incorporated a dragonfly then into that lace pattern. So the Darner chest, the, it, the title is, is referencing both the dragonfly, which is called a Darner fly, uh-huh. but because uh-huh. it's, what's the bottom part? It resembles a darning needle. And it's then it's also a reference to this needlework that the um, pattern is based on. So then she rubs white gesso into the carving mm-hmm. and sands that off so that the carved line is white on this pale pink pear wood. And then you open the drawers and they're lined with pale blue raw silk. And all of her drawers, she still does this. All of her drawers oh, yeah. are always lined with 
silk. Well, it's such a subtle contrast, all those those three different levels of coloring and texture. Um, I mean, it's all different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And and we did start to go down the, well, it's not a rabbit hole. I think it's something we haven't ex- really discussed that much on why make is, is the whole gender issues in, in woodworking and the fact that you know, Christina Madsen and of course, another really famous Boston maker, Judy McKee, they were really the first generation of women woodworkers to well, come also, onto the scene. Yeah, Wendy Moriyama as well. Uh, Wendy Mor- Wendy, oh, I feel so bad. Uh, I left Wendy out. Damn. <laughs> no, no, you didn't. You didn't leave her out. Wait, so um, Christina, Judy, Wendy, Gail, Gail, oh, Gail Fidel. Fidel, yes. Yeah. Um, and then people forget. I miss Gail. Uh, I shared a studio with her for like three and a half years in oh, Nashville. Did, did yeah. you? Yeah. Gail's, dear, Gail's dear, great. dear person, dear friend. Yep. And then I'm not sure where Roseanne, Roseanne, oh, Roseanne Summerson is yeah. part mm-hmm. of that. I think she was a little bit later than them. She's a little bit younger. Yeah. There. I mean, they were, you know, the first MFAs in art were only in like the 1950s, I think. Because for the longest time, the the only academic art degrees were for teaching, you know, elementary K through twelve degrees. But the so the first the first MFAs in woodworking from women were like in the mid seventies. Those women, people forget often Meryl Salin, the Turner. She came in through more in design, but she really should be included in that group as well. Well, and Rob and Robin Horn as well for that. Robin matter. Horn, right? Yep. Yeah. But there, are you all familiar with the um, making a seat at the table project and exhibition? So um, Deirdre Visser and Laura Mays, who Laura teaches at College of the Redwoods, and Deirdre was a student there. Deirdre's photographer teaches photography, um, but now she's a woodworker as well. But yeah, so they started thinking about, well, Deirdre actually, the way it goes, was pushing Laura on this idea of um, women in woodworking uh, and the history of that and what about that. And Laura's initial reaction, like a lot of us, was we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to be women woodworkers, right? We just want to be woodworkers and acknowledged. You know, we don't, we don't want to do that separatist thing. We don't want to be paid attention to because we're something unique or not typical in this world. Just just let us do our thing and be who we are. And Deirdre insisted, no, this is something to think about. So finally, Laura was like, yeah, okay, well, we'll think about it. And what, so they put together, they're, they're working on a book project on the history of women in furniture making that goes back centuries. And Deirdre dug up all this information um, about, about women, I I can't remember how far back it goes. A ways stuff that I never I never knew about. But then also really thinking about the contemporary moment. Then how women have come to their own in this world and what we've added to this, basically. So Jennifer Nava Milliken, who's the um, new director at the Center for Art and Wood, who took over when when Albert retired. She when she found out about this project said, we're going to do an exhibition. So they, you can go to the Center for Art and Woods website and they should still have the exhibition information up on there. So the exhibition ran from uh, early October through almost the end of January. They extended it. And it 
I don't know how many of us there were, but it was basically like turned out to be sort of a 50 year retrospective of women in furniture making um, with all the women that you just mentioned, you know, the sort of first generation of women, except Judy, what didn't participate. Um, it was very apparent. Her, her absence was everyone's mind. Yeah, it was definitely felt, but it was, I mean, there are young women just coming up in the furniture, not even furniture world. They're yeah. um, just look, look at it. Everything from yeah. small scale production. If, work. if you could talk about a little bit about what you're doing now on your sabbatical and your present work and your, your present inspiration. Um, mm -hmm. I'd really love to hear what's, what's driving and inspiring you right now. And, and of course, you know, the, uh, the other issue the as I've heard people refer to it, the weirdness, you know, the, the fact that we're all locked in our homes and yeah. although not entirely different for artists to be uh, isolated or self-isolating, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it, it, uh, the anxiety creates a, to me, a background noise that I'm having a hard time fighting. Yeah, so, for sure. But yeah, so please talk about your work and what you're doing during your sabbatical and what inspires you and, and what's driving you right now and in the in the in the the weeks, hours and months in the weirdness. In the weirdness, right, which we don't know how long it's going to last. One of the things I've been wanting to do since I started referencing this early American dowry chess, these Hadley chess, is add these other iconic forms early American forms that were built specifically to be used by women. And I started a little bit of this work when I was in grad school. I started looking at a um, lady's writing desk, which actually the first contemporary version of a lady's writing desk that I saw was a Judy McKee piece. I've been thinking about these forms for a long time and writing about them. My um, art history thesis was on ladies' sewing tables or ladies' work tables mm -hmm. from the federal period. If you recall, they're usually a little petite table with maybe a drawer or two on these little spindly turned legs. And the high-end ones have the, a fabric sack hanging between the legs huh. that's connected to a frame and can be pulled out like a drawer. And, and so what, the idea what's the function of that sack? I'm just curious. It... To, to hold needlework. Oh, okay. Hold some kind of, I mean, it wouldn't be able to hold anything too heavy or because these tables are, but most of them are on casters. And I, ca I haven't found that much. I can't find that much written about this activity or this idea that refers to one of these tables. But the, I think the idea would be that a lady could do certain kinds of needlework in social settings. So like imagine sitting at the parlor with other people and on a sofa and yeah. this little table pulled up beside you. you. I don't think darning socks or that kind of thing would be done at these. I guess the main thing that that I'm doing with these forms really is thinking about our inherited past, so American history and women's history, and thinking about how the material culture from that, both the objects that were these furniture objects that were built by men for women to use, but then the the women's work that these objects either stored or facilitated, and then using using the combination of those two things, the forms and then the women's work and the women's lives, which is largely anonymous because a lot of that material culture has disappeared because 
fabric doesn't hold up to the elements the way that wood and metal do. Um, so we've lost a lot of the work that women did. And then other work that they were doing was literally consumed by the family, right? Clothing worn, food eaten. And then their lives were not documented the way that men's were. So there's also a largely anonymous part of not just their work, but their very lives that's sort of been lost in the history. Uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich is a social historian, just retired from Harvard University. She was the first woman to be a full professor in the history department there. Her work was huge, has been hugely influential on my thinking about this because she writes a lot about material culture in terms of women's lives. And has um, her best known piece was um, A Midwife's Tale, which was made into a little PBS film. But she's also the one who... Um, coined the phrase, well-behaved women seldom make history. Yeah, it was the name of one of her, of a thesis paper she wrote. What I'm, what I'm doing is thinking about my own personal history through these forms and the historical research that I do around women's lives and the, the objects that they made and the connections between women's lives that the material culture and the process of making it gave them. And you know, the items being passed down through female lineages. So these Hadley chests, even though they were built by men and as property were owned by men, they were passed down through female lines. And even though they're initialed, we don't necessarily know who the woman was Mm -hmm. that they were originally made for, unless that record was somehow kept because that's, that's been lost. A lot of the chests have initials carved on the front panel presumably the initials of the young woman that they were made for. Wow. So like the, the chest, chest that I've spent the most time with is the RD chest. It's owned by the Chipstone Foundation in Milwaukee. Um, so that best guess is that was a woman named Rebecca Dickinson, but we don't know for sure. I'm thinking about my own personal history with these and also about the past and the present and so thinking about contemporary issues related to women, women's rights. But what's happening for me now is that idea of women's rights or human rights is starting to evolve out of this. So I'm also wanting to, with the Hadley chest, I largely looked at what was missing. Like I just described um, the anonymity of early American female lives, um, the material culture that's gone missing. So I think of, I, Think of the empty chest and the emptiness and what that means, how that relates to women's lives. So now I want to think more about what is there and about these three forms, a dowry chest followed by a Queen Anne style ladies writing desk and then a federal period. um, So chronologically as well, a federal period ladies work table or sewing table and think about what's there now, what they facilitated, the voice, the idea of female agency or feminine voice. Uh, that they allowed for, even if they didn't intentionally allow for they, that. They didn't actually make the objects. I mean, but they certainly, uh, right? They certainly had a strong influence on the object. No, this 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 sounds fascinating, and it and it sounds like uh, it's completely it fits completely within your, the conception of what you've been working on for a while in terms of taking all of your your love of history and your your very traditional skills and and wrapping them up into a conceptual sculptural project that uh, has a real grounding. Um, 
So it, it sounds wonderful. Well, and I just, so I'm, I'm nervous right now. Um, because I, I, I wrote this, you know, this was my sabbatical proposal to do this work. So the fall I spent doing some more research and writing about the Hadley chess and also developing the ideas for how I'm going to use the other two forms. And then I also, I just received a fellowship, artist research fellowship that the Center for Craft in Asheville has just initiated that's specifically for artists, for makers. So I was one of the first two recipients of that. So this is also my project for that, um, which will culminate in a an exhibition. Well, I don't, I don't know how this weirdness is going to affect the timing of everything now. We're supposed to have solo exhibitions, the two of us that got those awards, um, there in June 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hoping that those will be put off a little bit so that I have more time um, to make because I'm going to be teaching again the, in the fall. Or you think you're going to be teaching in the fall. <laughs> I think I'm going to be teaching in the Well, I'm going to be teaching some in some capacity. But I like I was just I was just talking to my husband the other day, you know, talking talking to him about the way that I'm scared right now about this weirdness and about what kind of world we're we're going to go back to after this. And there's a part of me that that sees that I think a lot. I suspect that a lot more kids right now are playing outdoors, are using their hands for things. I mean, I I think there are some interesting things that are happening that could be a nice influence and a, a paradigm shift that I think we need. But I also just, I was feeling really um, afraid about the relevance of what I do or the the relevance of making things, putting more stuff out into a world where the landfills are already, you know, I tell my students, I say the the last thing every semester, I tell my students, the last thing the world needs is more stuff. So if you're going to make something, make it with intention, be purposeful about it. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's a, I think um, that's a wonderful note to end on actually. And so uh, if you're going to make something, make it with intention, make it with love and, and make it with sincerity. You know, we'd like to thank you for joining us, BA. And it's, it's been great. Thanks. Yeah. It's been really wonderful talking with you. Yeah. And I hope everybody's uh, healthy, happy and safe and at home. And uh, why make? Why make? You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whymakepodcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at whymakepod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.